1: From W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Today we're looking at creative people whose talent is revealed in more than one area. Rabbi Michael Lapidus is an educator and singer-songwriter. His latest musical inspiration came during the recent Biden-Harris inauguration. We'll hear that song later in the hour. The famous restaurateur and chef Alexander Small studied voice and became an internationally renowned opera singer. He'll tell us about his recent cookbook, Meals, Music, and Muses recipes from my African-American kitchen. First, a social worker and community organizer as film curator. Zami Nobla, the National Organization of Black Lesbians on Aging, headquartered in Atlanta, is teaming with Out on Film, Atlanta's LGBTQ Film Festival for the inaugural Women's Suite on Women Film Festival. Mary Ann Adams is the founder and executive director of Zami Nopla. She joins
2: us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I am delighted to be here. I love the show. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Now, we said what
1: NOBLA stands for, the acronym. What does ZAMI signify?
2: That's a great question. We are actually paying homage to Audrey Lord, who is our patron saint. Uh, ZAMI is a caricue word that means women who work together as friends and lovers.
1: Ah, okay. So, hence ZAMI NOBLA.
2: Yes, it was actually the title of Audre Lorde's Biomythography, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name.
1: Yeah, I saw that in just falling down a little rabbit hole about her preparing for this. Yes. Why is it important to focus on empowering Black
2: lesbian
1: women 40 years of age or older?
2: We increasingly find ourselves becoming invisible as we get older in society and also in the LGBTQ community. It's a very youth oriented culture and women tend to become insular and isolated. And we wanted to create programming and space to impact social isolation and to mobilize women as they get older, because many women in our community are estranged from families, uh, have very limited social networks, and find themselves alone and lonely in their twilight years. And so we wanted to reach out and say, we are here, we are your community, and together we can actually create expanded space for each other, uh, particularly those who've been excluded from spaces.
1: What sort of community projects and events does your organization hold?
2: Well, when COVID-19 came to our world in 2020, we started to create a lot of content online uh, that was shared really far and wide. We produced uh, concerts uh, we had comedy shows, we had a DJ battle among our <laughs> members, <laughs> that was a lot of fun via Zoom. We also had an art cocktail and tea show. We began a weekly yoga class called Slow Your Roll Yoga for women 40 and older, and this is a partnership with AARP, and it was so successful last year, Lois, that we are doing it again this year. And it's at no cost for any woman over the age of 40, and we have mothers and daughters and cousins and aunts joining us for this wonderful weekly class. We are thrilled about that uh, because it was designed for women over 40, over 40 bodies. And that's why it's called Slow Your Roll Yoga. Mm Uh, We also have an ukulele class. Uh, We received a grant from Columbia University to to rearrange African-American spirituals for the ukulele. Oh, my. And we're teaching this class online for the next nine months, and then we will premiere our ensemble. So we're thrilled about that. Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Now, within the Art on Film Festival, this mini festival is called Women Sweet on Women. Would you talk about the title and how it's linked to an artistic program created by Sami Nobla?
2: Absolutely. In 2015, during the the Cato Book Festival, the poet Nikki Finney came to town. Oh, and we, yes. And we wanted her to headline an event for us while she was here. And I've known Nikki for a number of years and I was in conversation with her about what we could call this event that we were we were going to hold at Georgia State University. And we tossed around some names and I'm not sure if she came up with with Women Sweet On Women or if I came up with Women Sweet On Women, if it was a collaborative effort. Because she's a poet, she probably came up with Women Sweet On Women. But nonetheless, it was a literary effort and we named it Women Sweet On Women. Oh, she was
1: amazing in conversation. I had her on our show I think it was more recent than 2015. I think it may have been 2018. Actually, it was one of those Georgia State University public intellectual lectures she was giving. And we talked about when she won the National Book Award for Poetry and John Lithgow saying it was the most fantastic acceptance speech he had ever heard. Yes. That was special. Yes. Now, how did the partnership between Sami Nobla and Out on Film come about?
2: Well, since 2015, uh, when we had that first Women's Suite on Women Literary Program, we've had a number of events since that time. And we really developed that, expanded that that first program to amplify the creative expression of Black lesbians and empower and affirm women who are marginalized and rendered invisible and, and excluded from traditional art spaces. And so when COVID happened, our membership came to us and said, we really want to have events that not only allow us to come together in community, but also events where we can see ourselves, where we can feel good about who we are. And we had been wanting to have a film festival for a long time, but didn't quite know how to pull that together. And this seemed like a perfect time Lois, to do something like this. And so I was speaking with Hillary Thomas, who is the associate director, state director for AARP Georgia, and she mentioned, jim farmer and of course i know jim and know who jim i don't know jim personally but i I knew who of course out on film, i've attended their events and so i called them up and they were so gracious and so welcoming and just said absolutely marianne whatever we can do we are here and so it just started from there it's been a very respectful collaborative event they've been very generous with their resources and we thought we would put on this fests. Uh, we have a lot of members and a lot of supporters who are alone isolated and we also wanted to amplify those black lesbian filmmakers who don't really get a lot of shine who don't really get the recognition that they deserve and we wanted to also bring them to new audience laws some of these films are twenty years old and many, 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 many folks have not seen them. So it's really an intergenerational offering.
1: The documentary A Litany for Survival, The Life and Work of Audrey Lorde, will be shown at the festival on opening night. For those unfamiliar with Audrey Lorde,
2: who was she? Audrey for so many people it has just been a beacon of light. And you're right, A Litany for Survival by filmmakers Ada Gay Griffin and, and, and Michelle Parkinson uh, is going to headline this event. And that was very intentional because February 18th is Audrey Lois' 87th birthday. And she, this film represents her journey through six decades of the 20th century. From the time she was a, a Harlem schoolgirl in, in, in New York Too, when she was editor of the Hunter College Student Literary Journal, and later she was a she called herself a poet, a mother, a lesbian. Uh, She was a college professor. She was a librarian. She was a breast cancer survivor, Uh, and she was actively committed to Black women's liberation. I mean, I didn't think Audre Lorde really coined intersectionality before we'd even heard of the word she built these movements with black women in not just the US, but also South Africa and Germany and the Caribbean, you know, which was her parents' homeland. She has a dozen volumes of public, published nonfiction and poetry and essays and memoir and just countless speeches and, and, and readings and anthology contributions. And she mentored so many women and just really inspired this community of black, lesbian writers and artists and students and thinkers um, to make these personal and political commitments to activism and and social transformations. Um, She also, I want to add, was the Port Laureate for the state of New York in 1991. And she was just a a revolutionary vision for the future. Google Dougal is going to feature her. On the Google search homepage on February eighteenth, her birthday. You know
1: you have arrived <laughs> when Google features you. Now there's gonna be a second film about Audrey Lorde called The Edge of Each Other's Battles, The Vision of Audrey Lorde. How do these two films differ?
2: At the edge of each other's battles, the, the vision of Audrey Lord really centers intersectionality around a conference that women put on during the last stages of her life. And Jennifer Abbott, Dr. Abbott, who was the principal filmmaker Uh, knew that she had to capture this somehow. She'd never done a film before. Uh, She was able to just get cameras and a crew that was unpaid. And it really took her 10 years to bring this film to fruition. Uh, There's some footage in A Litany for Survival that Dr. Abbott graciously gave them to complete their work.
1: For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial, alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawn, looking inward outward at once before and after seeking nows
2: that can breed future. There are a lot of overlays in the film but 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 certainly the film at the edge of each other's battles is centered around a conference and everything that happened in that conference and women who threatened to boycott that conference because they did not see themselves represented of uh, asian women and black women and white women came together and they talked about their differences and they were able to put this conference on and you see all of that um and I think the 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 way that Jennifer was able to capture that uh, in, unadulterated just the 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 vulnerability shown by these women, women speaking their truths and the pain that they felt by not feeling included. Uh, And, you know, during that time, there were a lot of different movements going on. We we had the feminist movement, we had the anti-war movement, Uh, we had the LGBT movement, we had the civil rights movement. There was so much converging and all of that, I think, is really done extremely well in this conference.
1: The 2015 documentary Mind Game The Unquiet Journey of Shamik Holdsclaw will be shown at the festival. And there will be a talk back with Holdsclaw herself. In addition to being a legendary basketball player and Olympian, she's also an advocate for mental health. How does this documentary? address her own struggles with mental illness?
2: Shamiqua, in her talk back, really dives very deep. And she talks about the issues that were confronting her as a young Black girl in New York being raised by her grandmother, and then coming to Tennessee and that being such a cultural shock for her and how that really impacted her mental health, not really feeling like she could reach out because she was really the hope for her family and for her community. You know, this young black girl who had gone south, uh, who was a star at Tennessee, and who felt like she needed to shoulder the, the, the pain uh, and the responsibilities of everybody, her family, her community, her team. Um, and so this film, I think centers a lot of the issues that we find ourselves in in the Black community, and particularly the Black LGBTQ community, because mental health is a very salient issue that many of us struggle with based on a lot of the estrangement and the pain and the hurt that we feel from society by not being accepted and not being able to live in our truth and being who we are. Um, and so Shamiqua was so gracious with her time in this talk back and really explaining uh, how she's, she's coming through that with therapy, which sometimes is a bad word in some communities and that this is a lifelong struggle for her but she feels the best she's ever felt in her life because she is healthy now mentally physically she's eating right she's doing what she can do and she's speaking about her struggle to to kids in school to teachers to communities as a result of that so many people have come to her and said i'm dealing with this too and because you're telling your story i'm able to tell my story and we hope by showing this film lois that Festival goers, and particularly those in marginalized communities, will feel strong enough and empowered enough to, their, to tell their stories and to seek help around mental illness. This four day mini film
1: festival will highlight Black women and their many contributions and heroic efforts made to the LGBTQ community. What is the significance of having an established film festival like on Film dedicate their platform to this underserved community?
2: First of all, it represents the fact that white gay men and Black lesbians can work together. And we can work together in a collaborative way. That we can take our resources and we can help each other. We can help each other to reach larger and larger audiences. And we can be an example of that. I believe, Lois, that the only reason we're on this planet is to help one another. Why else are we here? And the fact that Allo and Femme has been gracious with their resources, with their time, with their energies, with their experience and their expertise to come on board and to help them, you know successfully put on this film festival I think, is a testament to who we are and how we move and how we can move in the world.
1: Marianne Adams is the executive director of Zami Nobla. The inaugural Women's Suite on Women Virtual Film Festival kicks off today and runs through February 21st. More information will be on our website, This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Alexander Smalls is a classically trained musician who became a renowned professional opera singer. He's also a James Beard Award-winning chef, a restaurateur, and cookbook author. Last fall... I spoke with Alexander Smalls about his cookbook, Meals, Music, and Muses. Here, he explains why music and food are inextricably linked, especially in African American culture.
0: Well, you know, it is a cultural expression that permeates the entire spectrum of the African-American life, the landscape of essentially how we live life through the lens of our colorful culture, our rhythmic uh, music, our expression of food from garden to pot to plate. Um, it has always been, especially for me, the two disciplines that have shaped and mold who I am as an adult. Music was there to help me cultivate a sense of belonging, and also to create a fanciful life. And food was their ultimate pleasure. But, you know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was a city farmer, and had a large garden. I would work that garden. Now, I had no interest in working my mother's flower plants, before, <laughs> especially the rose bushes. But I would get my hands in that dirt and plant some seeds and, and uh, take care of some tomatoes and butter beans, squash and watermelons. I loved it. And then that transition that happened from the garden to the pot, to the plate. And music was the backdrop for all of it. Yes. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. You you write that far beyond food inspired tunes such as beans and cornbread, one of my favorite, or pepper pot and Grits saint groceries. In the African American cultural canon, food and music served a dual purpose. Would you further elaborate? <laughs>
0: I think I answered both questions at once. (laughs) But, you know, I I mean, the subject for me is an endless soundtrack of my life. And this is why the book, Males, Music and Muses, really was so gifted for me at this time, having written three books, having had a, a, a number of careers. You know, I look back at how the music and the food created every container for all of my experiences in life and continue to i mean i essentially i opened my first restaurant to take my kitchen public to essentially feed and serve and nurture the world so it is an ongoing theme that resonates with me strongly personally but i feel Particularly with the African American uh, community. I mean, the two were so accessible, you know, because you could make up a tune and clap your hands and 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 slap your hip and hum your way to glory if you needed to. <laughs> and if you had something good to eat on that on that journey, it made it even better. <laughs> oh,
1: I have to say, your laugh is is such a wonderful reflection of that joy and definitely the laugh of a trained opera singer. (laughs) When did you first realize you wanted to explore the food of the African diaspora?
0: Well, you know, um, uh, it started as a child um, without any consciousness that I was planting the seeds to really dive into the concept of food as lore and history and and a tale, if you will. I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, already a transplant from the family's foundational birthplace, which was Charleston and Buford in the Gullah Islands. And when my grandfather moved the family to Spartanburg, which was maybe three and a half hours away, we took all of our customs. So none of my friends Ate the food that I ate. Their food was more Piedmont Appalachia, but it wasn't as defined as Gullah Geechee cuisine, that low country food that exists in the in the perimeter of Charleston, Savannah, the Gullah Islands. And so I knew that we were different, <laughs> just by what we ate and how we cooked and how we prepared. And my grandfather would lead us. Oh, every a few months back to Charleston in a car caravan. And we would, you know, go there periodically, taking things to family members down there. But coming back with moss from the Gullah country, hanging from the, remember when we had antennas as kids on cars, and we put moss in the back window, and there would be crates of live crab, and, and there would be oysters, and all of these things, produce that my my family would bring back from there and then there would be this big not really a party but it turns into a party because the music is playing and we're in the backyard with the newspaper on the picnic table and boiling crab in the big black pot outside in the backyard and a table picking crab everyone was picking crabs and and it would be this incredible ritualist gathering that always stayed with me so as I developed and went through my classical training and my classical career performing you know throughout Europe, and I came to the point where I understood that what I wanted to do, actually what happened really is that I hit the glass ceiling, if you will, as a black male opera singer, not able to move into the next level. I had sung in the opera houses uh, throughout Europe, Paris, Rome, Germany at Frankfurt, So after singing all over Europe, coming back to America, auditioning, trying to break through, particularly at the Metropolitan Opera House, I finally decided that whatever I was going to do professionally, I had to not only own a seat at the table, I needed to own the table. And that propelled me to open my first restaurant. 18 months after that disastrous last audition, I began to develop the foundation and building out my first restaurant, Cafe Beulah, in New York City, which was 1993, I believe.
1: Gosh, it's so mind-boggling. That wasn't so long ago. And yet I was interviewing Morris Robinson, wonderful opera singer who lives in Atlanta. We are blessed with, oh, gosh, a whole group of internationally acclaimed singers who happened to live in Atlanta. And Morris was talking about why he did not take on the role of Porky until 2016, and he only did that because La Scala came calling for just the reason you said he wanted to make sure that he could get enough roles under his belt so that he wouldn't be typecast and Porgy wouldn't be the only opera for which he'd be considered. But just in that generation between you, there were many more roles available to him.
0: Yes. I mean, uh, and... And he is a fine singer. I had the pleasure of hosting him at my supper club. Richard Parsons and I reopened Minton Playhouse in 2013 in New York. And one of the patrons of the Met bought out the club to have a private evening with Morris. You can imagine how special that was. And as the executive chef, I created a meal that complemented uh, that very special evening. So. Bravo to him and he was very wise to make those choices. Unfortunately, I didn't have those choices available to me because essentially it was Old Man River or it was Porgy and Bess in the United States. And I remember when the Houston Grand Opera came calling and offered me the role of Jake. Uh, I was a young grad student at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. I had this amazing teacher from Israel, and she was extraordinarily happy for me, but also afraid for me. And she said, I will give my blessings for you to take off with the Houston Grand Opera and have this experience, but let's say it will be two to three months and you come back. And I said, yes, of course. Well, two and a half years later, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, when you take uh, the boy out of the country and show him Paris and show him Frankfurt and Berlin and Rome and London, it's hard to put a stop to that. Oh, yes.
1: And to Grammy you did not mention. Oh, that.
0: gosh. To... You know, all of that that came with that moment. You know, I was so young and so impressionable. I didn't realize that in that moment, I was also essentially writing my fate. And it was, while it was the debut, it was also the, the kind of finale, if you will, of my classical career. I mean, after Porgy, I, I did a lot of recital work, stuff like that. Like many uh, Black male opera singers who moved to Europe so they could sing the classical music. I chose to move to Europe to study and also do recital work, but not opera, because the opera houses of Europe, particularly the ones in Germany, would exhaust the singers. I mean, they would literally come home with no voices and no opportunity to move into the possibility of large opera companies here. it was a it was a difficult and demanding time and I simply decided that I needed to change vehicles. My two great loves was food and music. So I got out of one car and and got into the <laughs> other one <laughs> and I hit the gas pedal. <laughs> <Thank> this <you. laughs> this
1: would be a great time to talk about how you structured the book with the division of chapters and particularly in regard to chapter four. Chapter four contains recipes for fish and seafood. Is that your tribute to Porgy? <laughs>
0: Catfish Row, you know? Yes, without question. This was my moment to, I mean, Porgy and Bess, extremely dear to me for all the right reasons. It was a low country Charleston moment. It reminded me so much of my grandfather and my ancestors, my cousins and great aunts and uncles who had, you know, little farms in the low country when I was a boy. And I I remember the street vendors who peddled their goods. Uh, And so, yeah, I wanted to create an ambiance to not only celebrate that, but also raise the consciousness of the bounty of the land from that particular part of the world.
1: The book contains a curated set of recipes, which you describe as a playlist of essential African-American dishes. In fact, the appendix to this book contains playlists for each chapter, which I loved, and I wondered, which came first? The playlists from which you decided the recipes or music that you thought would go well with those recipes?
0: Well, the food came first. I mean, no question or pause. I curated my kitchen offerings. And and again, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity to make something very personal. I mean, this is my third cookbook and it was my opportunity to curate recipes that I felt were signature pieces to my Southern landscape. And so I created the recipes first And then they were the inspiration for the music that I tied to each chapter.
1: And the playlists cover such a wonderful range of styles. For people who may be intimidated by opera singer, I must assure readers, listeners, not to worry, you will have your fair share of all genres. You (laughs) quote, The legendary chef Alice Waters of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, regarding another culinary great, Chef Edna Lewis. What what was the legacy of Chef Edna Lewis?
0: Well, you know, Edna Lewis was the first Alice Waters. Edna Lewis truly branded, crafted brought to view farm to table. She was uh, an extraordinarily gifted woman. Aside from her cooking, she was an incredible seamstress as well, as well as my mother actually. Uh, But Edna brought literally the farm experience into the kitchen, into the dining room in a unique way that even Alex Waters had to give her her due. She was a pioneer and she was essentially the face of the African-American kitchen. Extraordinary woman. I had the opportunity to meet and know her. Also my, my late uncle, Joe, who was a chef here in Harlem many, many years, prior, when Edda Lewis was, was here as well. And my aunt, who was a classical pianist, would talk about this woman when I was a kid. And so to grow up and then meet her and then be inspired by her truly was a gift.
1: It must have been extraordinary for you. In your acknowledgments, you write, Tracing the Steps of our ancestral people, we fuse together a culinary conversation in the kitchen. Alexander Smalls, thank you for this culinary conversation.
0: Thank you for having me, letting me sit at your table, and I've enjoyed it.
1: Cookbook author, restaurateur, chef, and renowned opera singer, Alexander Smalls. His new cookbook is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African American Kitchen. In his first presidential inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln appealed to the better angels of our nature, urging Americans to recall and preserve what made the union great and worth preserving. In his recent inaugural address, President Joe Biden invoked the phrase, and that inspired a song by Rabbi Michael Lapidus. He joins us now via Zoom. Rabbi, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you, Lois, it's wonderful to be with you.
1: The first time that we chatted it was a song you had written for the atlanta falcons rise up before they entered into the super bowl now it is on another plane that you come to us please tell us about your most recent composition
3: I had uh, the good fortune of being able to watch the inauguration uh, with my wife and with my young children, my daughter in fourth grade and my son in first grade. It had been a while, to be perfectly honest, since we had uh, given our children an opportunity to hear uh, the president speak. And so we waited with bated breath to hear what message he would have for our country, and as he spoke, I felt my heart softening. Uh, I felt my daughter, who's a little bit older, uh, leaning in, um, curious and inspired. And when President Biden spoke of better angels, um, instantaneously I knew that the song uh, would come come for me and needed to be written.
1: I read that you said the song sort of wrote itself did you feel like you were a vessel afterwards or or during the inaugural speech
3: that's a, a great way to characterize song the song writing process sometimes we think of uh, of the person who composes music as a as a songwriter in my in my more um in my more powerful experiences with songwriting, I'd like to think of myself as a song discoverer. And so I do feel that the song sort of manifested itself for me, and I had the, the pleasure of having a, a pen in hand and being able to capture some of the lyrics as they, as they more or less wrote themselves. Let a better angel spread the wing.
1: As the human heart she sees Sweet melodies her music brings Where love flows there to hope springs Our Better Angels, no doubt, was the starting point. What else about the president's address made itself so inspiring, and, and accessible
3: to you. The things that President Biden spoke of that really struck me and opened my heart were the call to unity, uh, the call to healing, and the call to remember our common bonds, the things that we share, our hopes and our dreams, for ourselves, for our parents, for our children, um, the belief that we can and and must do great things with our lives, that, that, uh, that life is a gift, and that we should cherish it and the way that we should, that we cherish it um, is by loving, um, is by listening, is by dreaming, and is by uh, rolling up our sleeves and doing the work that needs to be done.
1: Now, the recording we have and what you posted on YouTube was performed by will robertson that's correct why didn't you perform
3: it for more than a decade i've had the the privilege of working with will robertson he's uh he's 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 more than a producer he's more than a co-writer of many of the songs that i've written he's a true friend and someone that i have had the um the 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 ability to really entrust my voice and my heart and soul to and so will knows me musically as well and sometimes better than i know myself and it's a great it's a great privilege uh, to know where your talent stops and someone else's talent can generously step in and create something that then becomes no longer um, something that belongs just to one individual but something that from its conception is shared
1: Well, I think that shows generosity on your part as well. Let's get back to the lyrics. Certainly, as a rabbi, you are no stranger to angels, or at least the idea of angels. And I was hoping you would speak about the lyrics as they unfold you you don't need to go stanza by stanza if you don't want but particular phrases that stand out
3: i would love to a, a brief word about angels in jewish tradition uh, just as a as a as the rabbi and we can't help but use it as a teaching moment angels uh, appear all over jewish scripture angels um are 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 some sort of divine being and and, uh, and not quite human though. They sometimes convey certain human emotions, but in short, angels are messengers. Angels uh, have very specific roles that they play in the spiritual life of uh, of humanity. They're there to bring to bring healing, to praise God, to convey a certain message, and so. Um, the Torah is full of angels. Michael, Michael is an angel. Gabriel is an angel, and they all f- uh, fill different roles within uh, Jewish tradition, uh, ser- serving God with uh, the fullness of their being. And so, um, in terms of the song "Better Angels," to me, it really uh, is meant to be an American hymn, and 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 intended to be a spiritual uh, way of thinking about how we as Americans can summon. Um, the the angelic qualities within us to um to work toward a more perfect union and that's why it begins with a something of a metaphysical invocation Let our better angels spread their wings but from there very quickly moves from the from the metaphorical from the idea of the wings which uh last time i checked none of us actually had adhered uh, between our shoulder blades but to (laughs) our hearts we all have hearts to our eyes we all have eyes Uh, to our hands we all have hands and then in the final uh, verses, uh, to, the, to the hour. We are all given a certain amount of time allotted on this planet, and, uh, and it's ours to do with it what we can and what we will. And, and lastly, perhaps in a spiritual sense, to bring us home to our best selves, to one another, to the goodness within us and around us, to a sense of God's presence and to the heart of what it means to be an American, a citizen, and a human being. Let our bring us home. When we stand together, we are not
1: alone. And for the righteous, light is so. Let our better angels bring us home. When you talk about the reference to a more perfect union and the unity that is at the heart of the message of our better angels. It speaks volumes that here we have a president taking the oath of office who is a devout Catholic and a vice president who comes from a South Asian and African American tradition, and all of us transcending those differences and feeling united in the beauty of coming together.
3: That is certainly the hope, and uh, we, we transcend our differences, but we also carry them with us, and we hold them close to our hearts because we know uh, that that at the heart of our humanity is the desire to 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 be unique, to to have our own story, to have um, to have our own gifts and talents and hopes and dreams, but to recognize that um, that that at a certain point, we share those with our neighbors. And so I think that one of the great messages of Judaism, one of the great messages of America, is that diversity uh, and unity uh, are completely um, consistent with one another and that when they coexist, something truly glorious and and godly takes place.
1: Hmm. Rabbi, in what ways have you witnessed music help people cope with the difficult year of 2020
3: music is a constant companion i i i wonder if the if the truest language of our heart is isn't poetry or isn't music i think that that all of us have a song to sing i think that music comforts us music challenges us music reminds us Um, music can help can help us remember who we are and what we stand for and so I think that particularly amidst the loneliness, um, hidden behind the masks, the inability to touch one another so often physically, to be together in community, music is, is very much uh, one of the connective threads that preserves that sense of shared humanity that, that this brilliant um, and, uh, and, and crippling pandemic uh, threatens, threatens to take away from us.
1: Have you written any more songs since the inauguration?
3: I really appreciate that question. In fact, I I have, Lois, and perhaps I would end with a little bit of a teaser. I had an opportunity to write a song uh, in memory of one of the great Americans, another Atlantan, uh, a fellow by the name of Hammer Hank Aaron. And that song uh, called Keep Swinging is a song that really reminds us that baseball is a metaphor for life And that in addition to um, knowing how to hit a home run unlike any other, um, this great American hero um, encountered some of the ugliness uh, that still leaves a residue and a stain on our country, but that he greeted it with courage and that he greeted it um, with grace and with poise, and that um, so much more than a baseball hero, Hank Aaron is an American hero. And also, I I would just perhaps end with this on a very personal note. As you and I are speaking, today's the 35th anniversary of the Challenger uh, space shuttle tragedy. I was uh, seven years old, six, seven years old when that happened, and it was a defining moment in my life. I, I literally can't think about the space shuttle Challenger um, without crying, and I'm not a particularly uh, sentimental person in that respect, but I finally, perhaps knowing I was speaking to you, knowing that it's a, a new page in the history of our country, um, I, I finally was able to put some lyrics together for a song that commemorates uh, the seven heroic uh, pioneers, American heroes who, were, who lost their lives on the Challenger that day.
1: Would you come back on to share that music with us?
3: It, there would be no greater honor.
1: Oh, Rabbi Michael Lipetus,
3: thank you very much. It is truly my pleasure. Thank you, Lois.
1: That was Rabbi Michael Lapidus. He's the director of Judaic and Hebrew studies at the Davis Academy and composer in residence at the temple. His new song is called Better Angels, and it's out now. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Wright's. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at Lois R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.